Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer over at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our discussion about Amiga. We have this episode and one more to go because that story is crazy complicated, not from a technology standpoint so much as from a business standpoint because Amiga was so involved in the political maneuverings of other companies like Atari and Commodore. But in the last episode, I left off with the debut of the Amiga 1000, the initial, original Amiga computer. Commodore, the electronics and computer company, had purchased Amiga in 1984 and had saved it from being gutted by Atari and pulled out all the stops to show off this new computer in a lavish presentation at the Lincoln Center in New York City. I talked all about that in the last episode. And the computer was heading toward store shelves, eventually. And because it's going to come back in this episode a lot, here's a quick reminder. Jack Tramiel was the founder of Commodore, but he was forced to resign by the board of directors uh, led by investor Irving Gould after Tramiel had led Commodore to push Texas Instruments out of the computer business using drastic competition and price cutting. But Tramiel then went on to go to Warner Communications, which owned Atari, and in the wake of the video game crash in 1983, that company seemed to be worth very little. So Tramiel bought the video game console and computer divisions of Atari from Warner Communications for no down payment. And he was the one who would really go after Amiga using a $500,000 loan to Amiga. And if Amiga was not able to pay that loan back, Atari was going to get control of Amiga's chipset design. But then Commodore got into the picture and ended up buying Amiga for $24 million. And all of that is important to remember when we talk about the things that happened in the next couple of years. So while the folks at Amiga continued to work to get their Amiga 1000 ready to ship, they had shown it off at a big press event, but it still wasn't ready to buy in stores. Commodore was going through a bit of a cash crisis. The Commodore 64 was the best-selling computer of all time, but one of the reasons it sold so well was that Tremiel had been so aggressive pricing the Commodore 64 at a low fee in order to fight off Texas Instruments that the computers were really popular, but the profit margin was pretty low, so they weren't making a lot of money per sale. Commodore had launched several 8-bit computers to follow up on the Commodore 64, Commodore 64 was also an 8-bit computer. Uh, these computers were technically competing against the Commodore 64, which was a bit strange. And some of them were a little interesting. There was the Commodore SX64. That one was a semi-portable PC. I call it semi-portable because it weighed more than 20 pounds, and you had to plug it into a an AC uh, wall outlet. There, were, there was no onboard battery that would let you work with it without it being plugged in. It was interesting, but it didn't sell very well. Commodore would discontinue it in 1986. But they also launched the Commodore Plus slash 4 in 1984. This was built on an earlier computer architecture called the Commodore 16. Commodore 16 was a wholly incompatible architecture with the Commodore 64. You could not run 
software written for the Commodore 64 on the Commodore 16. The same was true for the Commodore Plus slash 4. You could not run Commodore 64 software on it. And so there really wasn't a place in the market for this odd computer, and so it didn't sell well either. The question came up, why would I buy this other 8-bit-based computer if it's not compatible with this really popular one? And no one really had the answer to that. And then there was the Commodore 128. This was still an 8-bit computer. And you might wonder, why are we calling them 8-bit computers if you have Commodore 64 or Commodore 128? Well, that actually referred to the amount of RAM or read access memory in the machine. Not not the, uh, the processor, but the actual amount of memory. So the Commodore 128 had 128 kilobytes of memory. It actually had two processors. One of those was meant to handle processes or applications that were associated with Commodore 64, and the other was meant to handle Commodore 128 software. So it could work on both. Unlike many of Commodore's other computers, this one was actually backwards compatible. It sold modestly well, but the 128 came out just at the end of the 8-bit computer era, so it was kind of a, a an also-ran because there were more advanced computers coming out immediately following that. So Commodore was a company that was not making much from its products in 1984-1985. It had purchased Amiga for $24 million, but Amiga did not yet have a computer available on the market. There, you couldn't buy an Amiga yet, not until late 1985. And meanwhile, Jack Tramiel was suing the heck out of Commodore for forcing him out of the company. All of that meant Commodore wasn't able to dedicate the resources that the Amiga team needed to get the Amiga 1000 out earlier. They were able to develop it, but they weren't able to produce it as fast as they wanted to. Amiga was finally ready to take orders for the Amiga 1000 in August 1985, but Commodore was strapped and couldn't actually move into high-capacity production yet. So in October 1985, they had only managed to produce 50 of the Amiga 1000 computers. Five, zero, just that many. That's it. Now, none of those were actually in customer hands. They were all internal computers. They were either being used to develop software or they were used to give demonstrations to potential customers. And to make matters worse, over at Atari, Jack Tremiel had been busy in 1985. He had pushed his engineers and programmers, a lot of whom had left Commodore to follow Tramiel after he had been ousted from the company. He had been pushing them really hard to rush a new computer system to market and get ahead of the Amiga 1000. Jack Tramiel was always one of those people who took these things very personally. And so he thought, well, if you're going to force me out of my company, I'm going to come back and launch a computer that's going to completely take the wind out of your sails. So in the spring of 1985, months before the Amiga would come to market, Atari introduced the Atari ST computer. And the ST stood for 1632. That meant it was a PC with a CPU that had 16 and 32-bit components or or buses. That's the uh, facilitators for communication between different components within a computer. This would be the Motorola 68000 CPU. That's the same chip that served as the CPU for the Amiga 1000. And the Atari ST also had a graphical user interface, or GUI, or GUI. It also had a mouse, and it had a color monitor option, although the base model was monochromatic. 
and it was relatively inexpensive. So it was a true shot across the bow of Commodore. Now, Atari had a head start, but Commodore got more units moving, and by November 1985, it was actually finally possible for your average customer to go and buy an Amiga 1000 at a computer store. But that late entry was still a disadvantage. It was not able to take the the full advantage of the holiday shopping season because it came out so late. And also Commodore made another very odd decision, and I honestly don't know what the logic was behind it. They decided to only sell the Amiga 1000 in computer stores. And the reason why I say that's weird is because back in the 80s, you could find computers in lots of different places, including big department stores. And Commodore had previously used big department stores to sell their computers. The department store Sears had even offered to carry the Amiga 1000 in its stores. And Commodore declined the offer. So if you went into a Sears and you went to their computer section, you could find the Atari ST, but not an Amiga 1000. And Commodore also did not do a really good job on the marketing front for this computer either. For one thing, the ads they debuted all seemed to be a pale imitation of other ads that were on the market. Specifically, there was one that was obviously a copy of Apple's famous 1984 ad. And just in case you don't know what I'm referring to, I'll give a quick rundown. But if you've never seen this ad, you need to go to YouTube, search Apple 1984 commercial. It'll pop right up. It is one of the most famous commercials ever made. In 1984, Apple released a commercial. It was directed by Ridley freaking Scott. The film director directed this commercial. And it showed a bunch of people walking down a hallway that had monitors all over it. And they're lit in these very kind of bluish lights. So it's got this very drab gray scene. Everyone's kind of dressed in uh, and very... Uh, dull clothing, and they're all kind of staring lifelessly ahead of themselves. And then they file into what is essentially a, like an amphitheater, and they sit down there looking at an enormous screen with a huge face on it. And it's essentially a character who's like Big Brother in George Orwell's 1984. And that is intercut with shots of a woman who's wearing like a white tank top and red shorts, and she's running down a hallway, and she's carrying an enormous hammer. She eventually runs into the room with the giant screen on it and hurls the hammer at the screen, and that shatters the screen. It shocks the lulled people who had been watching it, and the message was that Apple was going to break the model of the dull, locked-down, and utilitarian PC that had been introduced by IBM. So IBM was the big brother. Apple was the woman throwing a hammer through the screen. It made a big impact, and that was in early 1984. So late 1985, we're talking nearly two years later, Commodore releases an ad during the Christmas season, and it shows a group of emotionless drone-like people shuffling slowly up some stairs. At the end of the stairs was a pedestal upon which sat the Amiga 1000, and the monitor is just got this blinding white light coming out of it. So this was clearly an imitation of the earlier Apple commercial, but not nearly as impactful. And because it's an imitation, you don't you don't admire it the way you would with the Apple commercial. You'd say, oh, they're just copying what's already been done. Uh, they had another commercial that showed an older man walking through an M.C. Escher-like collection of weird staircases. You get a real Labyrinth vibe from it, although to be fair, Labyrinth would come out after this ad did. He eventually gets to a similar pedestal that has a computer on it, also emanating a blinding white light. 
And he looks at the screen and he smiles, and then the screen cuts to black, and you then see an illuminated fetus fill the screen. Yep, little baby fills the screen, glowing. It's weird, and it's obviously an homage to Stanley Kubrick's film 2001. I do not think it made many people want to buy a computer. I did see one ad from that era that made me chuckle. There was a man walking his dog in a suburban neighborhood, and inside one of the houses is a boy who's working on his computer, and he's created a replica of his own house on his Amiga 1000. And then he clicks his mouse, and he makes the the image of his house rise up off the bottom of the the image he's working on. So he's, he's lifting his house up. And meanwhile, his actual house starts to lift up out into the sky. And none of that really got me chuckling. But what did get a reaction out of me is the music that was playing in the background of the commercial because I recognized it. And I realized eventually that it was from the movie score to the film The Goonies. And then I went and listened to The Goonies soundtrack. The ads were not doing Amiga any favors. By the end of 1985, Commodore had sold fewer than 50,000 Amiga 1000 computers. Now here's hoping this ad break is more effective. We're going to take our quick break to thank our sponsor. In addition to the sales and marketing woes, the initial batch of Amiga 1000 computers had some stability issues. You might remember from an earlier episode that I talked about how they had programmed the system crash error to read guru meditation error. It was sort of a tongue-in-cheek message. Unfortunately, this particular error was popping up with frequency, and Amiga 1000 was quickly associated with not just being unreliable, but this whole guru meditation error message. And the team was able to patch the problem and address it in future shipments, but the reputation of the computer was already damaged. People associated the Amiga 1000 with being unreliable. One product that worked in Amiga's favor came from Electronic Arts. It was actually some software. So Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts, was impressed by the Amiga. He had received an Amiga as sort of a developer kit and was working with it and playing with it to figure out what he might be able to make with it over at Electronic Arts. He led his team to rewrite a program called Prism for the IBM PC. That in turn was already an evolution of an earlier piece of software called Doodle for the Xerox computer. And this new product for the Amiga was called Deluxe Paint. EA produced what was then a truly incredible image of King Tutankhamun's golden death mask. And chances are, if you've ever looked at art from earlier computer eras, you've seen this picture. It was iconic. It would become a very important piece of art that Amiga would use in a lot of its advertising moving forward. And it was a go-to for Amiga for marketing. And Amiga was in desperate need of good software because without good software, your computer doesn't really do any good. You have to have people develop stuff for it. Uh, Developers were less keen to create software for the Atari ST, largely due to Jack Tramiel's reputation for being difficult to work with. So there were developers who were shy about working for Atari ST because they didn't want to have to deal with Tramiel. And there were people who were getting more and more excited about Amiga. So while the Atari ST was priced lower than the Amiga, it had more trouble getting good software. Investor Irving Gould, again, he was the guy who led the effort to force Jack Tramiel out of Commodore. 
had put a man named Marshall F. Smith in charge of the company, of Commodore. Smith had previously worked in the steel industry, which, as you might imagine, is not very much like the computer industry. In the computer industry, tech changes very quickly, and the business has to adapt to that. Steel does not tend to change very quickly, and Smith just didn't seem to quite have the mindset to head up a computer company. He also made some decisions that some critics would point at later as being very questionable. So, for example, back in early 1985 at CES, he got into a conversation with somebody else and that someone convinced him that Commodore's line of portable computers with LCD screens, which they were showing off at CES, was going to be terribly unprofitable. They were just going to end up languishing in the market and the company was going to lose money as a result for really backing a portable computer with an LCD screen. And Smith took it to heart and he canceled the line of computers. So while they showed one off like a prototype over at CES, it would never become an actual Commodore product. Here's where people got really upset. The person who told him that it wasn't going to be profitable was the CEO of Tandy, Tandy slash Radio Shack. That was the company that was making its own line of portable computers. So essentially, Tandy was able to talk a competitor out of launching a product that would have gone toe-to-toe with their own products. And a lot of people said that Smith let a competitor sabotage his own business. Marshall Smith began to cut costs at the end of 1985 because Commodore was not going to be profitable unless they were able to trim a whole lot of the expenses. That included cutting payroll by 45%. Commodore had suffered losses in all but the final quarter of 1985. And at the last quarter, it posted a $1 million profit. That was not enough to set off the losses from the rest of the year. And it had a lot of debt to pay off as well. So over the course of the fiscal year of 1985, Commodore lost $237 million. Clearly, that was going to affect Amiga as well as a division of the company. And Commodore's struggles in 1985 spilled over into 1986. The company made the decision to skip both CES shows that year. Remember, the Consumer Electronics Show, which these days has one show a year. It's in January. It's in Las Vegas uh, in the United States. There are some international shows too, but that's the one big one in the U.S. Back in these days, it had two shows, one in the winter, one in the summer. Well, Commodore skipped both of them and also skipped Comdex, which was a huge computer trade show at that time. And it had always maintained a very large presence during these shows. So its absence was notable. On the executive side, over in the corporate section of Commodore, Chief Operating Officer Thomas Radigan was preparing to move into the role of CEO with Marshall Smith stepping down. This had been the plan all along. This was not a sudden decision. It was a long-term strategy. And so Radigan had been groomed to become the CEO of Commodore. And he was given a five-year contract that would expire in 1991. And he assumed the role of Commodore CEO in March 1986. And it was down to him to turn Commodore into a truly profitable company, which was going to require some really tough decisions. Radigan had previously served as the CEO of PepsiCo International, 
which was a pretty interesting move because Apple had previously hired away Pepsi CEO John Scully in 1983. So now you had two former leaders of Pepsi leading personal computer companies that were in competition with each other. Radigan would lead three rounds of layoffs, and the first round targeted people who were described as layabouts. So I'm guessing these were folks who either were not particularly productive at their jobs or they held jobs that did not seem to contribute to the bottom line of Commodore in any real way. So that was the easiest cut to make and probably was the one that was uh, making the most sense from a business standpoint. The second round of layoffs involved cutting the people who were working on what were now irrelevant or underperforming projects. So Radigan would discontinue things like the PET or PET computer line, which had been introduced way back in 1977. He also discontinued the VIC-20, which came out in 1981. The Commodore 64 was still selling, so he kept that going. The Plus Slash 4 and the Commodore 16 models also were cut, and a few other projects that were for systems that had not yet debuted but were in development those were eventually axed as well. And a lot of those people, most of them, were let go. The third round of layoffs was the hardest to make because there still needed to be cuts in order to get Commodore back to profitability, but now they were cutting into people who were contributing directly to Commodore's business. So a lot of people referred to this as cutting into the bone because it was it was beyond the 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 folks that you could more easily say goodbye to because they were not contributing to Commodore's business. So here was where programmers and engineers found themselves out of a job, both at Commodore headquarters in Pennsylvania, in Westchester, and the folks over in Los Gatos um, in California, the Amiga folks. They, all of them saw cutbacks. But another big change was coming, and that was that the Amiga team was told that their operations were going to move across country and that the team was going to join the Commodore headquarters in Pennsylvania. People working for Amiga had to make a decision. They could continue to work for the company, but that would mean they'd have to move across country or they were going to have to quit. Jay Miner, the guy who had led the design for the Amiga chipset, the co-founder of Amiga, the one guy who had been a consistent presence at the company from its start, decided he was done. He resigned from Commodore as a full-time employee. He would continue to act as a consultant for the company for several more years. And ultimately, Jay Miner passed away in 1994 due to kidney failure. One other reason Commodore wanted the Amiga folks to move closer to their headquarters had to do with an embarrassing prank that went a little too far. So the Amiga had a graphical desktop environment that was called Workbench. And there was a software developer who was working on an upgrade to Workbench, the, you know, a later version like 1.2. And as far as I can tell, this person's identity has never been revealed. But this software developer hid a message in the code. And the only way you would unlock the message is if you pressed a certain key combination simultaneously. And it wasn't a common one, so it would require you to know about it or to have heard about it in order to do it. And if you did do it, a message popped up on screen. That message read, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, we made the Amiga, they effed it up. The message did not obfuscate the curse word. They 
they actually said it in the message. The head of software over at Amiga was perhaps amused, but told this developer that this Easter egg was going to have to go. It could not stay in the software. And at first, it seemed like this engineer had taken that to heart. Because if you did the key combination after the engineer had made some more changes, it now said, Amiga, born a champion. But this turned out to be a smokescreen. Because if you held down another set of keys, the message, we made the Amiga, would pop up. And then if you were to keep holding those keys down and then have someone insert a floppy disk into the disk drive, a second half of that message would pop up. The they effed it up part would flash on screen for one sixtieth of a second. Now, it sounds like such a thing would not be discoverable. Like this was just there for the engineer. No one else would ever know about it. It would just be this sort of insubordinate behavior that ultimately wouldn't matter. But in fact, someone in Europe found the code embedded in the read-only memory of the chips. They could see that it existed there. And managers who worked at Commodore UK issued a recall on all the existing machines and demanded that the affected ROM chips would have to be replaced with new ones that did not contain that message, which set Amiga back three months in sales in Europe. And just so you know, traditionally in Europe, Amiga did much better business than it did in the United States. So this was a big deal. And so Commodore wanted to bring these jokesters maybe a little closer to home, where they could be a bit more carefully observed. I have no idea what sort of dressing down that engineer might have received as a result of this prank gone awry, but I imagine it must not have been a very good day for that person when all of this shook out. I've got more to say about Amiga, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Commodore CEO Radigan wasn't just cutting jobs and moving people around. He wanted to make the Amiga platform a success. He didn't want to get rid of it. He thought a good strategy would be to create two lines of Amiga computers. One would be dedicated toward a lower price point. It would be a lower power machine. It'd be kind of the budget version of the Amiga. The other would be a powerful computer aimed more at professionals, high-end users, people who wanted to have a lot of power in the graphics and audio side of computation. And so he thought we should make two brands of Amiga. That would mean making one machine that was similar in spirit to the old Commodore 64, something that would be accessible and could get people excited about Amiga's approach. And the other would be a more powerful and more expandable computer than the Amiga 1000 was. So the 1000 would be kind of the middle of the road And these two would take more of an extreme uh, path off of that middle. Radigan's methods, while harsh with all the layoffs, worked from a business standpoint. In the last quarter of 1986, Commodore posted a $22 million profit. In the previous year, it had suffered $237 million in losses. So this was a good move. But he was also setting people against each other. Radigan had wanted that lower-powered, lower-priced Amiga super fast. This would become the Amiga 500. And he had to figure out who was going to actually develop this. Now you had all of Amiga under the umbrella of Commodore. So you still had some engineers and developers and programmers who had been part of Amiga, the ones who hadn't been laid off and the ones who had chosen to move across the country. But on the other side, 
You had engineers who had been at Commodore for a while, and Radigan decided that the Commodore engineers would be the team to work on the Amiga 500. He felt that they would have the motivation to do it quickly. They had a challenge ahead of them. They were being told, this other team developed this architecture. I need you guys to make a less powerful uh, version of this as quickly as possible. So they had something to prove. And so they had to work super hard to get the computer on the market earlier than if the original Amiga team were to work on it. The thought being that the original Amiga team would probably do a better job, but they would take a lot longer to do it. Jeff Porter became the director of new product development. He had previously led the effort to design and build that LCD portable Commodore computer I talked about earlier, the one that Marshall Smith had canceled after the Tandy CEO was so helpful. George Robbins and Bob Welland, who had been working on a Commodore workstation that ran on Unix before that project had been canceled by Radigan, would become the lead engineers for the Amiga 500. George Robbins decided to increase the amount of RAM on the Amiga chip called Agnes up to one megabyte. The goal was to give the chip enough memory to support higher graphic resolution. His decision kind of ruffled feathers with the original Amiga team who had designed this chip, but that reaction ended up being a motivator for the Amiga 500 team at Commodore, not something that detracted from it. The new chip was called Fat Agnes, and it worked. It boosted the Amiga's abilities to display graphics without breaking backwards compatibility because it still was using the same architecture as the previous chip. But it did slow things down a little bit in the process. The machine itself ran a little more slowly. However, the improvement in graphical output helped balance that out. George Robbins also took a look at the motherboard that the Amiga team had designed to try and figure out ways that they could simplify things to reduce the cost of fabrication and get that Amiga 500 down to the level that Radigan wanted. One of the things he cut was the original Amiga's ability to connect directly to a television set. Robbins would replace that capability on the motherboard by including an adapter that could do the same thing but would not be incorporated directly into the actual motherboard. That simplified the fabrication process for the motherboard itself. He also took the power supply out of the computer and he made it an external component. He designed the Amiga 500 to integrate the keyboard directly with the computer case, so it was part of the computer case as a whole. And the computer case included an expansion slot that would let users plug in devices without having to open up the computer case. Each move helped bring the Amiga's price down a little bit. Meanwhile, Radigan had decided that the high-end machine, which would become the Amiga 2000, would not go to the original Amiga team either. There just weren't enough engineers left to carry the project. So he initially assigned the development of the Amiga 2000 to a team of engineers at Commodore's German subsidiary. That team took the Amiga 1000 design, and then they essentially added more stuff to it. They added in an interface for expansion cards. Uh, they changed the case to a more standard PC case. But then Radigan sees this design and he says, that's not really what I wanted. It's not... It's not powerful enough. It's not a step far enough from the Amiga 1000. He felt the team had failed to deliver upon the goal of building out a truly powerful computer for the high-end market. So he turned to Commodore designer David Haney. And Haney looked at the designs of the original Amiga chipset and, and motherboard design, and he began creating new hardware. One thing he built was a chip called Buster. And Buster's purpose was to handle the operations of the expansion bus. And again, a bus is a 
component that facilitates communication between different computer devices or even different elements within a computer itself. Buster's design worked on a an architecture that was called Zorro, and uh, it would allow for almost a plug-and-play approach with expansion devices, which was uncommon in that era. The Amiga 2000 sported five expansion slots using this Zorro bus design that Haney had built. It also had four IBM PC ISA slots. ISA, by the way, stands for Industry Standard Architecture. That was a term IBM used for its 16-bit internal bus for computers that were built on the 8286 CPU architecture and beyond. So 286, 386, 486, those. This gave the Amiga 2000 incredible expansion abilities when paired with the right devices. Haney also put the processor on a separate board from the motherboard. So why would you do that? Why would you put the CPU on a separate board? Well, the idea was that that would allow you to swap out the CPU more easily. So you could conceivably upgrade the same machine over time as long as the CPU was compatible with the rest of the architecture of the computer. Haney also incorporated a generator locking mechanism on the Amiga that's also known as GenLock. The GenLock would allow a user to output computer images to display on top of a video feed without affecting the image stability. So you could overlay computer graphics on top of a video feed. This is the sort of stuff you see in broadcast systems all the time, uh, where you might see a graphic appear on top of, say, a, a live news report. That's due to stuff like this, like a GenLock. This feature would make the Amiga 2000 the go-to computer for video production and broadcast once a very important product would debut. More on that in a bit. For a case, Haney was able to pull a design from the canceled Commodore 900. That was that Unix workstation that got canceled. Uh, I had mentioned that a little bit earlier when Radigan was canceling all those projects. That was one of them. The Amiga 2000 was certainly more powerful than the Amiga 1000, but some people, like Jay Miner, felt that the computer did not go far enough. It wasn't really transformative enough. Miner believed that the technological advancements that were in the industry had outpaced the 2000, and that Commodore had made a mistake by not going far enough with the design. Like the Amiga 1000, the 500 and 2000 both experienced delays in development. It takes a while to build out a new computer design, even if you're starting from an already established foundation like the Amiga 1000. The teams building the 500 and 2000 were not the same people who had designed the 1000 to start with, so it took some time just to get up to speed before serious design work could begin. Investor Irving Gould and the board of directors wanted to see new computers hitting the market right away, replacing the Amiga 1000, which was doing modest sales. And remember, the Amiga 1000 debuted at the end of 1985. They wanted the new 500 and 2000 models to debut in 1986, but it was taking a while to get them ready to go, longer than Gould would like. He was notoriously impatient. Irving Gould pushed the board to hire a management consulting firm to evaluate Commodore. Essentially, from the way I've read it, it sounds like he was looking for a reason to be able to fire Radigan. Well, there was a, a man who was part of this consulting firm who came in named Mehdi Ali, who was then a special advisor, and he prepared the report. And one of the suggestions that Mehdi Ali made in this report was that the board should fire Radigan as CEO right away. 
Radigan knew what was up. He could see what was happening. So he went to work the next day anyway. He was then met by security and lawyers and was escorted off the premises, but reportedly no one could actually tell him why he was no longer employed. He had made some really tough decisions as CEO. A lot of them were not terribly popular because they involved tons of layoffs, some of really good people. And they some of those decisions might have been harmful in the long run, but he had returned Commodore to profitability. He had pushed for the next generation of computers in the Amiga line, and now he was history. Well, almost. You see, there was the matter of that five-year contract he had signed. So Radigan sues Commodore for breach of contract, claiming $9 million of unpaid wages. Commodore countersued Radigan for $24 million. This case would go on, stretching all the way to 1991, which fittingly would have been the end of that five-year contract. The courts ultimately found in favor of Radigan, and they dismissed the countersuit against him. In Radigan's place, Gould would serve as the chief executive for the time being. As for Amiga, the 500 and 2000 would both launch just a short while after Radigan had been let go. And I've got a lot more to say about how those computers turned out, but we're going to cover that in our next episode where we learn about the ultimate fate of Amiga. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a company, a person in tech, anything like that, send me an email. The address you should use is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Make sure you go on over to tpublic.com slash techstuff to check out all of our merchandise. We got some cool stuff in there. And don't forget, we have an Instagram account. You should be following it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 